0: If you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 6, we are in the middle of a series on this verse and then some of the surrounding bit around it as well, where Isaiah gives this promise that is appropriately repeated at this time of year. Speaking both judgment and grace, speaking both um, God's law and God's gospel to God's people, he tells them in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and we say thanks be to God. This morning we will be focusing on the second of the four titles given in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 and that is this promise that this child and this son that is going to be given is going to be called mighty god. Last week we talked about this title wonderful counselor. And this morning we're talking about this child, this messianic prophecy of Jesus who is to be called the mighty God. Now, as as you well know, it's no secret to you that that uh, Advent and Christmas and all of the season that surrounds these things is a is a time of hope and joy and peace. I mean, if, if you have if you are really bored out of your mind today, you can go to uh, uh, to to uh, Walmart or or Target or wherever it is you do your shopping. Uh, that's fine, uh, and and just look for Christmas cards, right? And just count up the ones that just say hope or joy or peace on them. And that'll that'll keep you busy for, I don't know, a couple of hours maybe. But I want to offer something to you that might sound a bit weird. And that is that Christmas is not about a celebration of hope or joy or peace. What I mean is that these are abstract concepts. They're, They're meaningless unless you know what you're hoping in, why you're joyful, and what is the reason for your peace, and what does that mean. Christmas is about something rather specific. And if I if I asked you, I, I think I think many people very understandably would say, "What is Christmas about?" We'd say, "Well, it it is the it is the birthday of Jesus. That's what we're celebrating. Jesus' birthday, right? Christ is born." Yes, but it's actually more than that, or it's more specific than that. I want I want the congregation at Grace to really know this in your bones that if someone says, "Why do we celebrate Christmas?" The central answer is not joy or hope or peace or thanksgiving or even love or a nativity or even primarily a virgin birth even saying we celebrate the birth of Jesus is somewhat insufficient because christmas is not just about a birth day now all the things i just listed are certainly rightly celebrated at christmas time but it's not just about a birthday The central reality that defines Christmas. What is Christmas about? It's about a miracle called the Incarnation. That is what Christmas is most centrally about. Everything else either leads to that or flows from it. The eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. Who always existed in time immeasurable past. Before all worlds. We'll confess this later. God of God, if you want an analogy, light of light. If you didn't hear the first time, very God of very God. Begotten of the Father, not made. That is, He's the Son and He's always been the Son. There never was a time where He was not. And so He's not a creation. Who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin called Mary. One of the things that I love about this larger season is that it's a time that is really, I mean, you see it in like the Christmas movies, it's kind of really obsessed with bringing wonder back to the ordinary, right? That's like every Hallmark movie as some dunce or fool has forgotten the wonder of Christmas and has to be reminded, right? And that's true that we do forget. We forget about the wonder. We talked about that a bit last Sunday. Wonderful Counselor, and so let's start there. Let's let's bring ourselves back to this moment when the angel first explains things to Mary. I think we might be leading with that Isaiah text, but right after that, yeah. Uh, so we'll go on to the next one, Luke chapter one verse thirty-five. The angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you." Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, set apart, special, the Son of God. So that's the purpose of the virgin birth. It, it emphasizes this reality that the Son of God is who's being born. One Puritan writer, Stephen Sharnock, describes the miracle like this. He says, what wonder is it that two natures infinitely distant should be more intimately united than anything in the world? And yet without any confusion, that the same person should have both a glory and a grief. An infinite joy in deity and an inexpressible sorrow in humanity. That a God upon a throne should find himself in a cradle. That the thundering creator be a weeping babe and a suffering man. Are such expressions of mighty power as well as condescending love that they astonish men on earth. And angels in heaven. And so we remember and we rejoice in this reality that God the Father has always had a son. And that the Son of God has always himself been God. I want to make that clear just in case it isn't or if there's any absence of clarity. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we are not saying that he's anything less than God. It gets, it gets into our doctrine of the Trinity. If you want to know more about that, there's this actually great book we've got in the book repository in the Fellowship Hall uh, called The Forgotten Trinity, which I would commend to you. Um, certainly is a great explanation of that doctrine. One day, to about 2,000 years ago, so the Father sends the Son. By the power of the Holy Spirit, there's a baby. For unto us a child is born. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto us a son is given, and this child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God. And so God is called mighty here. That's not surprising. That's sort of what it means to be God. And the Hebrew here is this El Gabor. Actually, the word mighty, you could also translate uh, hero. So God God, the Redeemer, the Rescuer, the Hero, the Conqueror even. You get a sense very quickly that whoever this is, he must be powerful. We're told, in in fact, in Luke chapter 4, at the start of Jesus' ministry, that this is one of the things that marked out that ministry. Jesus returned from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. The power of the Spirit was upon Jesus, and so he was able to do wondrous things, so much so that people started asking questions. As you see, news started getting around, and people started asking questions. Luke chapter 4, just a little bit later, verse 36. All were amazed at his teaching. They said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands unclean spirits, and they out. And so, what is this word? And then our, our next text, uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. This moment where they're all in the boat, the disciples. Uh, right after Jesus has calmed to storm and they say, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and sea obey him. The reason why Matthew put that question into his narrative is because is he wants you, the reader, to be asking the same question. What sort of man is this? And so... I don't want you to miss it. That At the start of the, the verse is, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and this one will be called the mighty God. That doesn't make sense. Right? You don't have a born God. In, uh, certainly not in the minds of people in Isaiah's time. So why is it that God's going to give a child, a son, who is called mighty God? The answer is, is because that's exactly what you and I need. And it's exactly what you and I start to doubt when times get hard and when life gets difficult. When we doubt God because life gets difficult, it usually boils down to one of two questions or both of them at once. All doubt can usually be traced back to one of two questions or both of them at once. And one is, does God really love me? And is God really powerful? So, so do I really have a loving God and do I really have a mighty God? When we face trial, difficulty, pain, even tragedy. These are sharp reminders of the sinful condition of our world. That evil has not yet been extinguished. And so we start asking, does God really love? And you see something like this, I think, in the Psalms. Uh, For instance, Psalm 13 starts off, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? You, you can see underneath this question is, is a, I, I, I know intellectually that I, I, I serve and worship a God of love. Right now, that's not sort of the, the testimony that my life and my circumstances seem to be preaching. How long, O oh Lord? Psalm 44 says something very similar. Why do you hide your face speaking to the Lord? Why do you forget our affliction? Nor oppression, which are the sort of questions you start asking if the hurt goes on for long enough. And so, the question about sort of, if you'll pardon me, sort of where where is the love? Where is this God of love? I'm going to explore that a bit more next Sunday. Where I want us to focus is that second question about well, okay, maybe He loves me, but is is He powerful? Is He powerful enough to stop bad things from happening? And that's the question, like, uh, something like the psalmist asked in Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Right. So this, this man's in misery and tears, and people around him are asking, where's this Yahweh of yours? I thought he was big enough to stop the things that are happening to you, or even stuff that's happening to us. It's the sort of sense you might get if you watch the news for long enough. Where is this Almighty God? And that's, by the way, that's the nat- that's just the nature of our flesh. You're, you're kind of born wrestling with this reality that when you're burdened by pain and suffering, you assume God doesn't love you or isn't powerful. It's, it's just where your flesh likes to run to. Part of the reason is that we are a people obsessed with power. More and more we're in more and more, as you see, in a culture of godlessness. Unless there's a significant shift in the culture, and do pray for that, by the way, unless there's a significant shift, people in a culture of godlessness get really obsessed with power. This has been predicted by some of the more honest atheistic philosophers of the last few hundred years. Nietzsche and others like him basically said, look, if there's no God, then it really all just boils down to who's got the biggest stick or the biggest gun or can yell the loudest or has the most control, right? Why? Well, it's because we, we get obsessed with power because weakness is really scary. Especially in a godless world, right? If you don't believe there's a God or if you don't believe there's a judgment day where the God of the universe will, will settle all accounts down to the very words and thoughts, then the correct conclusion is power's all that matters, so get what you can and can what you get. And furthermore, if, if that is the greatest concern of life, right, in, in a godless world, the greatest concern is who's, where, where, how do we distribute the power, well, then you've got to make that the purpose of the law, and the purpose of religion, and the purpose of all your morality. You have to despise any group or any system that speaks of, for example, authority and submission, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about authority and submission. But suddenly, Christians don't. Suddenly, we've stopped talking, the more I see, we've stopped talking about the biblical statements about authority and submission. Why? Because we live in a power-hungry culture, and there's really no room for that kind of talk. In a power-hungry culture, power and authority don't just cause problems, they are the problem. It's it's why there's so much... So, like a random example would be even for things like... Um, uh, localized authority in a church and 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 membership, which I've always kind of struggled to understand. What I mean is, is like some people really struggle with the idea of church membership. And to that, I would say I, I think on one level I get it because you're you're like, where is this? Um, where's this kind of practice where you you know you have your new members class and stuff like that, and then you take ask these membership questions and people answer yes, we do, and then all that. Yay, you're right. That's not you know you don't find an example of that. What you do find an example of is people in local bodies who are accountable to elders and deacons as prescribed in the New Testament. And if you know a better way of making that happen rather than church membership, I'd say, please, like, come talk to your elders. We want to know. But it, it is interesting to me, and, and maybe I'm leaving preaching and going for meddling, to quote Bob Vinson, but people, people will complain, well, Christians are such hypocrites. man. That's not good, right? The, uh, the idea, if it's true that like, lots of Christians are manifestly hypocrites, we really need to do something about that. We really need to figure out a way of holding Christians accountable for their actions. Well, that sounds really legalistic. I'm sorry, can you make up your mind, please? If power is your idol, though, back to the point, if power is the idol, you'll despise authority. And you'll have to reduce all religion, all worship, all good works, all use of money all use of like public policy to power struggles. That's what all of it will be. All of it, all of it, all of it will be power struggles. And if somebody has power, they probably need to be divested of it. And if somebody thinks they don't, well, that needs to be changed because they won't be happy until they do. And one of the greatest lies that's come about today, even within the church, is that God comes to make you mighty. Okay? The idea that God comes to make you mighty. God comes to give you riches so that you don't have to trust Him. He comes to give you perfect health so you don't have to hurt. He comes to give you perfect emotional balance so you will never have to fight anxiety again. He comes to make godly people comfortable. Right? Now, don't misunderstand me. God loves His people. And there's a danger in preaching about these things that you just... You make God sound like the the eternal almighty killjoy. God loves to bless His people. That's again and again shows up in the Scriptures. That's been going on since Eden until we made a mess of the place. But the gift of God for you in Jesus Christ, the Son given to you, is a mighty God, not a mighty you. I don't mean that over time... God will not cultivate some things in you, right? We sang that in uh, Hail to the Lord's Anointed. He comes so that the weak can be made strong. Yes, yes, he does. Certainly he can and will and does over time give you, give you, more, give you faith to grow, give joy to grow in, that in spite of your circumstances, you do learn a kind of steadiness, a kind of peace, a kind of patience if you're bold enough to pray for it. But it probably won't look like you think. It probably won't come about in the ways that you imagine. What God gives to you, to us a child is given, is Himself. right? That's what He, he gives. To us a son is born, to us a child is given. His, he'll be called Mighty God. So, so God is going to give you God. That is, a, that is the best way, I think, one of the best ways to express the Gospel. God giving you God. And He remains... The mighty God for you, not against you, but for you, even when you don't feel particularly mighty. Perhaps especially when you don't feel particularly mighty. And so Christians have a mighty God. This is our confession, right? Our only comfort in life and death, yeah? That God owns our life. That the hairs on your head are numbered. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly Father. Indeed, all things must work together for your salvation. And so Christianity is the religion of a decidedly mighty God. And that is really terrifying to start out with. It's precisely part of what Isaiah is saying to the people of Judah. If we can go back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13. So obviously before we get to chapter 9, a little ways up but the but the lord of hosts yahweh of the armies him you shall honor as holy let him be your fear let him be your dread you remember last from last sunday this was contrasted this was in contrast to call not conspiracy everything this people calls conspiracy but if you want to be afraid of something rather than being afraid of a conspiracy let him be your fear let him be your dread he is the mighty one you are not right and what's going to happen at that point when, when people get a hold of this reality of, of the mighty God, let him be your fear, let him be your dread, let him be the thing that you revere. Either you will or you won't. So this is what's going to happen. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Here's the point. Here's the point. God is either a sanctuary or a stumbling block. What he's never is is neutral. And you notice that if if you read through the Gospels, when people meet Jesus, it's not a a neutral encounter. They don't walk away, eh, you know, who who knows what. they, They either walk away rescued, redeemed, forgiven, worshiping, telling people about it even when Jesus said don't, or they walk away angry. Uh, they walk away grieved even. The rich young rulers who I'm thinking of there walked away sad. Or they try to kill him. But nobody just walks away sort of neutral. And that's, that's what an encounter with Jesus means. That's, that's what reading the Gospels will do to you. It will confront you with this mighty God who will either be your sanctuary and your refuge Or he will be a stumbling block to you, whereupon you'll be broken. And so this is true of all people. A God who is, listen, we we have a God who is mighty enough to defeat all your enemies. Well, that's not scary. That actually sounds pretty cool, right? God who's big enough to defeat all my enemies. Yes. Have you met them? They're really obnoxious. It's not scary. It's cool. Precisely what Israel wanted and all they wanted when Jesus came, right? A God who gives us power. Yes. Power to conquer the world. And and look, there's an element there that's real. Psalm 2, which calls upon rulers of the world to kiss the sun, a Hebrew metaphor saying basically bow the knee, right? Love your king. And so, yes, you should pray that every world leader will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Out loud with the cameras rolling. That'd be great. And we wait for that day. My point, however, is that it's a given that we want a God, a mighty God, a God big enough to handle our circumstances and to change them. To change them, right? I mean, who, who in here doesn't want God from time to time, or maybe right now for a long time, you've just been waiting for God to change your circumstances? And that kind of patience can be really hard and really trying. To some extent, an encouragement to you and me is the Apostle Paul sitting in prison, writing letters of joy, bearing affliction and asking God to take it away. And God says, no, you need your weakness right now. Now, we want a God mighty enough to change our circumstances. But a God who is mighty enough to change how we feel about our circumstances is actually kind of threatening. A God who can change my desires? A God who can rescue me from addiction? Certainly that is a power within the mighty God, but maybe maybe that resonates less with our wider culture today because there are plenty of, uh, we'll just say, godless addiction recovery programs that can do the proverbial trick. But how about a God who can save sinners? All right, we're okay with that. Okay? What sorts of sinners? Well, the kind that aren't so bad. Okay. Tax collectors. Oh, sorry, let me translate that for you to modern parlance. Abusers. Criminals. Sex offenders. Right? This is where things this is where we start to well, I don't know. I don't know if God plans on saving and changing them. Right? That's tax collectors in the first century. A God who throughout history has made slaves and peasants content while the rich remained empty and miserable and full of envy. This is a quality of might, a quality of power, mighty God, that we will struggle to believe. Because we love the idea of a God who can move mountains. We are terrified at the idea who would move hatred out of our heart entirely. Take it away. Take away our bitterness or anxiety or our self-centeredness. And that, by the way, that's more of a temptation than I think we realize. What I, what I mean is that for, for some of us in a different seasons of life, your, your temptation is to, like, protect your suffering, right? Don't, don't tell me that God means to give me hope to leave behind my suffering. My suffering is how I get people to pay attention to me and feel sorry for me and be really nice to me. My suffering is how I excuse my sin, My suffering is what makes me a special case, and it's why I don't have to obey God like everyone else. Don't take that away from me. I'm not saying all of you, but think about it. Or if we say, God is much bigger than your sort of the situation of your society, social ills, political terrors that consume all your thinking all the time, if I'm not complaining about something, Like that, I might have to express gratitude and and quiet faith and simple obedience and a contented heart, and I really don't want to do that. Well, to you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. And this child will be the mighty God, Emmanuel. And that means God is, is, as it were, moving in a lot closer than you ever bargained for. You believe in God? Good for you. Good for you. Even the demons believe, and at least they have the good sense to tremble. We all want a God who's strong enough to crush our enemies. Strong enough to crush our circumstances. Strong enough to protect us from harm. Strong enough to know the future. And look, the Scriptures do in fact give you that kind of God. Because the, the, the verbiage I just used was capable or, or able to do all that. Certainly He is. But what Isaiah gives to you, what God gives to you, what this word this morning gives to you, to us, a child is given to sinners like us. And he comes to change you. And so I wanted us this morning, just through through preaching, us to be really honest that the thought that God is strong enough to change our hearts is actually kind of scary. If you remember, throughout Ezekiel, it's in isaiah too but but you'll remember throughout ezekiel we have this problem that keeps getting more and more exposed that the veil keeps getting torn back more and more the, the idolatry of israel and and their hearts being drawn away from the worship of god to the worship of idols and to those people a child is born to those people a son is given the mighty god okay why do they need a mighty god brothers and sisters because they need new hearts. Right? That's what the, that's what the prophets revealed. What the, this this idolatry problem we keep coming back to, you need a God who's big enough to change you. To change the way you think and the way you talk to yourself and the way you talk to others and well, all these things. This goes I mean, remember this, Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart. A new spirit I'll put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh. And give them a heart of flesh, a real heart, that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules, and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And so this is what we celebrate at Christmas. That if the Son of God can be raised from the dead, if a virgin can conceive and give birth, then everything else that confronts you is a lesser power than than death. Now, again, that comes as a bit of good news, right? The, the good news is, you have a mighty God, therefore be comforted. Right? Everything is within His control. Everything is at His command. The second is, you have a mighty God, therefore walk after Him. Follow after Him. Right? Keep my statutes, keep my rules, obey them, walk in the ways that He has made for us. And the Lord Almighty, the mighty God, will either then be your sanctuary or your stumbling block. Right? Back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. That the Lord will either be our sanctuary or He'll be our stumbling block. And so it was that about 2,000 years ago, after witnessing the horrors of a crucifixion, Eleven-ish Jewish guys came to believe that God had become man. And if you think that is impossible, I'd actually kind of uh, I would I would invite you to look at the front of your bulletin. You have this quotation from Timothy Keller: Everything in the Hebrew worldview militated against the idea that a human being could become God. Jews would not even pronounce the name Yahweh nor spell it. And yet Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, and by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers, Jewish followers, that he was not just a prophet telling them how to find God, but God himself coming to find us. Now, why does, that, why does that matter? Because there's a tendency, I think, today in our modern arrogance to be like, well, yeah, they were ancient people. I bet with a little bit of skill I could have convinced them that I was God too. No, you couldn't have. This was the absolute opposite of everything in their worldview. In some ways, they were harder to convince than you. So, what is it that could change those kinds of bedrock worldview beliefs overnight? Other than a resurrection. If it seems implausible to you, it was even more so for them. It was a stumbling block, but it became their sanctuary. Their reason for living, and eventually their reason for dying. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Mighty God. In the name of Jesus, amen.